How many pieces of cloth are bought worldwide in one single year? No matter what you guessed, I am sure you were very far off. It's hard to find the exact number, but estimates put it at around over 80 billion new pieces of clothing annually. Clothing sales have more than doubled since the early 2000s. According to the European Environment Agency, this overconsumption of clothing in the European Union uses about 1.3 tons of raw materials annually and more than 100 cubic meters of water per person. This is how much the textile industry has grown. But in the context of increasing climate breakdown and nature loss, it is clear that producing fewer clothes is key. And that's where the well-being economy model comes in. An alternative approach to the economy that puts people and the planet first. Together, we're going to deep dive into an industry away from growth. How will the environment benefit from a well-being economy model? What will a transition to producing fewer clothes mean for the textile workers? Hi, my name is Sarah Tekat and this is Wellbeing Wardrobe. Undressing Fast Fashion, a podcast from the European Environmental Bureau. Our guests today are Samantha Sharp and Jennifer Hinton. Samantha Sharp is Associate Professor and Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures. Her research focuses on the intersection of the world of work and climate change. Her particular focus is innovation processes, public policy and employment implications of just transition. Samantha's work has a strong focus on sustainable fashion and environmental and social sustainability in the global textile and garment sector. She currently works with the International Labour Organization, ILO, on projects to increase environmental sustainability in the sector in Asia and to ensure a just transition. Dr. Jennifer Hinton is an ecological economist, sustainability researcher and educator. She discusses degrowth, hashtag well-being for all, sustainable economy and sustainable business. Her work focuses on how societies relate to profit and how this relationship affects global sustainability challenges. Her relationship to profit theory explains how key aspects of business and markets drive social and ecological sustainability outcomes. As an activist, she collaborates with civil society organizations, businesses and policymakers to transform the economy so that it can work for everyone within the ecological limits of the planet. Samantha, Jennifer, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. In the last episode, we learned about the negative impacts that fast fashion can have on the environment and on the people that work in the industry. So in order to change that, it's clear we need an alternative economic model. And today we're going to talk about an approach you may or may not be familiar with. It's called the well-being economy. And together we want to learn how this could be applied to our clothes. 
Samantha, you have been looking at the idea of fashion in a well-being economy in your work. Can you please walk us through what the well-being economy is and what it has to do with fashion? A well-being economy really just has a different focus to our current economic system. So if you think of the current economic system, the goal is continuous growth and material accumulation. It's reflected in how we think about success. So we're always focused on measuring GDP growth. And we know this is not environmentally sustainable, as you've heard in the previous episode, or socially sustainable. So wellbeing economy starts from a different place. It looks at people and planet and designs an economic system that is good for them, that puts their wellbeing and the wellbeing of the planet first. We really need this across the entire economy, but the fashion sector really provides a concentrated example of why. We have an industry that's really focused on faster and faster production, and that's having significant impacts on workers and the environment. When we think about the current approaches to fashion sustainability, things such as responsible sourcing of materials, improving transparency, providing better labelling and certification, they're all really quite small scale. They aren't big enough to deal with the pollution and resource consumption challenges that we face. And they really don't address the underlying issue of overconsumption. So wellbeing economy approach provides a new way forward. Could you briefly sum it up for us? What are the key findings of the Wellbeing Wardrobe Report? So in the report, we looked at a lot of the wellbeing economy literature and we really came up with four key principles that a wellbeing economy approach needs to have. And number one is limits. We need to get to grips with the idea that we could Endless growth isn't possible. And this is really true in the fashion sector. So we need to reduce the amount of textiles and clothing that we consume. And the ones that we do continue to make, we need to make sure they're high quality, they can be used for a long period of time, and they can have multiple life cycles. Second, if we're thinking about limits, then we also have to think about fairness. So the second uh, principle was fairness. And we need to design a system that distributes the costs and benefits of the global fashion supply chain in a way that's fair both across the globe currently but is also intergenerationally fair. And if we're talking about putting in place limits and also intergenerational fairness, then we need processes that can help us do that, so governance processes, and they need to be participatory. So we need to have everyone who's involved in the global textile and garment supply chain, involved in the decision-making, involved in the discussion, and they need to be deliberative. And fourth, we need new systems. So we need new ways of buying and selling clothes, new ways to exchange to ensure that we can still have the clothes that we need and the style and the fashion we all really enjoy, but in a way that doesn't exceed planetary boundaries. Thank you. There was already a lot to process. So let's maybe pause here for a second and zoom out a bit to talk about the broader degrowth and post-growth movements that are looking at how to move our economic system beyond economic profitability. Jennifer, could you kindly unpack these concepts for us, please? It's building a lot on what Samantha just said. So a sustainable economy is really oriented around meeting everyone's needs equitably within the ecological limits of our planet, right? Degrowth and post-growth approaches are really 
trying to grapple with that question of how can we organize our production and consumption systems to equitably meet needs without constantly driving or requiring growth in production and consumption. In fact, degrowth is actually saying that we need to shrink the size of our production and consumption systems. And often we think about that and the instinctual sort of knee-jerk reaction is that, oh, well, without economic growth or with even shrinking economies, we're going to be less happy. But actually degrowth and post-growth come at this from a different angle, saying, well, all of the overconsumption that we have right now is actually doing a lot of harm to us psychologically and socially, all of the advertising around us, for instance, the planned obsolescence that, that companies sort of have resorted to designing their products is actually quite socially harmful. The algorithms, not to mention, that have gotten us addicted to our phones and whatnot. So shrinking the economy in over-consuming communities like here in Europe will actually result in higher levels of social well-being and ecological well-being. We need to get away from the economic growth paradigm that we're in right now that sees economic growth and GDP growth as an end and as a measure of a success in itself. So how can we get beyond that? We, we need a degrowth transition and a post-growth economy is really what kind of economy comes after this growth-based economy that we're in right now? So clearly it will be politically and practically challenging to move away from the industry's dominant economic model. But at the same time, there's also more recognition these days. So what do you think is happening to drive that recognition and what more needs to happen? There is some recognition that we need to change the economic model. So most business structures in our global economy are for profit. And that means that in their legal structure, they are designed to deliver returns to investors and owners, um, to enrich their investors and owners. Some seeds of hope can be found in the fact that more and more businesses are adding on social benefit. And so trying to focus on delivering, yes, profit to their investors, but also protecting the planet and people. But that's not good enough, really. <laughs> so we need to move beyond that to where businesses focus only on helping people and planet. That's where my work comes in, in understanding how we need to transition away from for-profit business structures that dominate the economy and the fashion industry today to not-for-profit business structures that then treat profit only as a means to meeting community needs. And in the case of fashion, for instance, that is the need of having comfortable, fashionable clothing that help us express ourselves and feel good. But it's not about making investors richer. Maybe as a question to both of you, are there already existing examples of industries besides textile where these concepts are being explored. Samantha, would you like to start maybe? There are many sectors where work and the true actual value of that work is underestimated in our modern economy. So when you think of the care sector, health and social services, childcare services, 
services that we all need and we all critically value at um, you know different points in our lives. I think there's some really good examples, some seeds of innovation where well-being approaches have been adopted. But unfortunately, by and large, these are small scale. They're kind of one-off examples because they're still really existing in an economy that has this growth mindset. So reorientating the whole economy to well-being approaches, I think will really unleash many more positive outcomes from these existing examples. Jennifer, do you have anything to add? There are examples all over the place of more generative and well-being oriented business models and other types of initiatives, grassroots initiatives, you know, going back a little bit to the previous question of what are some of the seeds of hope, what's already happening in this right direction. I think the degrowth movement in itself is one seed that is pushing things in this direction. And so there's all kinds of initiatives and businesses there. And so These examples can be found outside of the textile industry, but I also do want to take the opportunity to mention the example that Patagonia's transition from a for-profit structure to a not-for-profit structure just last month provides as sort of an example of a bigger business and a bigger initiative. So the fact that it was able to to make this transition in such a explicit and well-advertised way so that the whole world could see, I think provides a really powerful example for other businesses that yes, they can. Before going deeper into the interview and picturing what the textile industry would look like in a well-being economy, let's recall a few concepts we have just learned. The current economic system we live in and work in focuses on endless growth and overconsumption. Countries measure success yearly based on a monetary market tool called Gross Domestic Product, GDP. Governments, central banks and business community use this term to say whether society is successful or not, just by looking at the goods and services produced for sale in the market. But is endless growth possible? Quoting the Limits to Growth report from 1972, this model, focused on material accumulation, is not sustainable. As we have heard, a growth-oriented mindset contributes to climate change, biodiversity loss and tests the planetary boundaries. On top of the harm to the environment, it leads to a socially unbalanced world. The textile sector and fast fashion industry are great examples of this. But there might be an alternative model for the industry, the well-being economy. This model proposes leaving behind growth logic and putting people and the planet first. Jennifer, in theory, this all sounds really good to me. It really does. You were painting an, an image of an industry that is more sustainable for the environment and less harmful to people. But of course, there's always that clash of theory and reality. And under a capitalist economic model, most businesses are structured in such a way that they are bound to deliver financial gain for their shareholders. And this can result in a sort of lowest common denominator approach to the environment and people. So how do you see the transition to a system where we essentially change the rules of the game? Or is it about applying some of these well-being principles to the current economic model? Yes, great question. So 
It is definitely about applying these well-being principles to the current economic model, but with the aim and the goal of fundamentally transforming the economy. We actually have to replace that core goal of private financial gain with the social benefit gain or social benefit purpose. And so how do we do that? I think that this sort of transition, it's huge. Like you mentioned, it's sort of moving away from capitalism as we know it. So it has to happen on lots of different levels and with lots of different people acting all at the same time. A core part of it is raising awareness about this transformation and about the the possibility of having an economy that really is built for people and planet and not just financially benefiting a handful of investors. And then once people have these ideas, we need to get the social movements to push for this transformation, to pressure businesses to make that transition like Patagonia did, to pressure policymakers to make policies that then favor not-for-profit types of business over for-profit types of business. And then, you know, some of your listeners might actually be CEOs or thinking about starting up a business themselves, and they have that decision that they can make to start start this up as a not-for-profit type of business instead of a for-profit. You have just used the wording pushing and pressure quite a bit. So let's assume we actually manage to convince the industry that producing less is key. Does this mean less working hours, less salary, and potentially the complete loss of their job for the people in the industry? Because in the first episode, we spoke about potential empowerment of women that work in the garment industry. Samantha, what do you think about that? Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, moving to a well-being economy will have a significant employment implications, but I don't think they necessarily have to be negative. People always talk about how they don't have enough time to care for parents, have a time out with their children. So part of the well-being economy approach is to really balance that paid employment with the other activities that people do in the community that are just as valuable but are just not represented in our current economic model. Transitioning in the textile and garment sector will be a big big change. I mean, if you add up all the people that work in the industry from growing raw materials, cotton, all the way through textile manufacturing, garment manufacturing, retailing, it's an estimated 400 million people, which is one in eight workers globally, and most of them are women. So it will be a big change, and so we'll need to think carefully and plan carefully for that change. So the priorities for well-being economy approaches in Europe and America will be different. They might focus on moving beyond consumption, moving beyond materialism, whereas in the South, in the global South, it'll be on the quality of development and the quality of employment and how we educate and empower those women that are currently in the garment sector to have equally productive economic, social, community lives outside of, of the garment sector. In which way will the environment and society benefit from this new mindset? And how can this be used to convince the textile industry to change? Right now, our 
for-profit economy is systemically driving overconsumption because in order to deliver all of that profit to investors, companies have to sell more and more stuff. And so, you know, we're surrounded by advertising, we're surrounded by products that are breaking down before they need to. And all of that has enormous environmental impacts, both in terms of carbon dioxide emissions, but also biodiversity loss, deforestation, and the list goes on. So the sooner we can start consuming at a sufficient level rather than over-consuming, especially in high-income communities like here in Europe, the better it's going to be for the environment. And how can we use this to convince the textile industry? I think that they are already aware of a lot of these things, and it's really about creating a sort of a safe place for a lot of these companies to make this transition. And that comes back to my point before about putting some pressure on them to make them feel more comfortable about making this transition than staying in their status quo for-profit structures and ways of doing things as they are now. Samantha, from your estimation, how long is it going to take until we will be able to see the positive impact of these changes? In the last five or six years, I've seen a real advance in the understanding and the way that environmental and social consequences and impacts of the sector are discussed. You know, in the last few weeks, I've been working in Southeast Asia, and these are live debates. You know, workers and businesses in these countries, they're no longer talking about just jobs or industrial development, but they're talking about quality, quality jobs, environmental protection, social sustainability, decent work. And what all that means whilst living in planetary boundaries. And actually, when you think about it, these countries are much closer to sufficiency models of living than we are in the West. So I think the harder leap is going to be for us in, in, in Europe, Australia, America. But I think a lot of the barriers are around a lack of narratives. Like we don't know another way. And so we have to imagine that. And I don't think we've got there. We've been inspired enough. You know, after the pandemic, we can't say that we're not able to make drastic changes to the way we live our lives. But I think we need some inspiration to be able to imagine it and really understand how our life might look differently and for the better. I ask this question in every episode. So I'm also going to ask you. What can our listeners do? Is there a way for an individual to help the well-being economy on the way? What can individuals do? Individuals definitely have a role. Think about every item, every new item of clothing you buy. You know, I'm not here to tell people how much clothes is enough, but I think individually we can start to ask ourselves that question. So how much is enough? If we still need to buy, then we need to think about buying sustainably. So, you know, can I buy secondhand? Can I reuse or repurpose items that are already in my wardrobe? Can I redesign them or restyle them in a different way? So buy less, buy better quality, buy what you like, not what's on trend, um, and think about where you buy from. So what are the company's values, business models, and make sure that they align with purchase that you want to make. 
as individuals, we can push for these larger systemic changes. These individual consumption choices are very important that Samantha just pointed out. And we can push for these systemic changes by maybe drawing up a petition and sending it around, getting a lot of signatures for some of these policy changes that could help businesses make the transitions we need them to. Join an existing social movement, or if you're already part of one, like an environmental movement or a workers' right movement or a movement for social equality and get these ideas and this vision of change into that movement so there's something more concrete to work towards and push for in these existing social movements. I think that could be very powerful. Maybe as a last question, in case our listeners wish to learn more about the Wellbeing Wardrobe Report and the Wellbeing Economy Model, which sources would you advise them? So you can find more about my work at, at my website, which is relationshiptoprofit.net. So relationship hyphen to hyphen profit.net. You can also find more about the well-being economy at a really great website called weall.org. So it's the Wellbeing Economy Alliance website. And I think this also taps into what I said in the previous comment about a social movement. So I think these, these sorts of alliances that are being created, join one of those and there's a lot of power there already. If you go to the Wellbeing Wardrobe Report on the EEB's website, in drafting the report, we really read through a lot of really interesting literature on post-growth, degrowth, how it's been applied in lots of different economies across the world. And so if you go to the reference list, there's really good reading material there, including Jen's work. Dear listeners, we will also make sure to put all the links in the show notes for you. Jennifer, Samantha, thank you very much. Thank you so much too, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. For those interested in reading the Wellbeing Wardrobe Report, which inspired this conversation, you can download it from the European Environmental Bureau website. That is www.eeb.org. If you want to know more about Jennifer's and Samantha's work, you can follow them on social media. You can find Jennifer Hinton on Twitter by her handle HintonJen. That's H-I-N-T-O-N-J-E-N. And you can find Samantha Sharp on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening to Wellbeing Wardrobe, Undressing Fast Fashion, a podcast by the European Environmental Bureau. You can find us online on wardrobechange.eu. That's W-A-R-D-R-O-B-E-C-H-A-N-G-E dot E-U. And follow the European Environmental Bureau on Twitter at at green underscore Europe. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore E-U-R-O-P-E. And this is it for today. The producer of Wellbeing Wardrobe is Sarah Abuschleich. Editorial background and script writing by Maria Dios from Bulle Media and myself. Sound design is by Thomas Kusberg. Editing and mixing is by Jeremy Bouquet and Thomas Kusberg. My name is Sarah Tegart. Until the next episode. Goodbye.